0: The Fake Show podcast welcomes our newest sponsor, the Craft House Brewery in Henderson, the law firm of Hutchison and Steffen, Banger Brewing in downtown Las Vegas, Mr. Antenna, and Brew City Brand. It's The Fake
1: Show with Jim Toffney. These are the armies of the night. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? The Furies. The boppers, the hi hats, the Turnbull aces, the Gramercy riffs. Riffs, yeah. These are the Warriors.
0: That's the trailer from The Warriors, which was a favorite film of mine from 1979, I suppose partially because I was the same age as many of the cast members like Michael Beck, James Remar, Deborah Van Falkenberg, and my next guest, Thomas Waits, but mainly because of the stylized direction of Walter Hill. It was controversial. Fights were breaking out at various premiere locations. The studio didn't know what to do with it. They pulled all promotion of the film after... After the first two weeks, it still did well at the box office and, of course, has since become a cult favorite. At the time that I spoke to Thomas, he was getting ready for a Warriors reunion and fan party at Coney Island. His perspective as a cast member of that film might surprise you. He came from a rough background and he had his problems with director Walter Hill. Listen now as I get in touch with Thomas Waits or Fox from the Warriors. Hello. Hi, is this uh, Thomas Waits? It is. Tom, this is Jim Tofty in Las Vegas with The Fake Show. How you doing? Hey,
1: Jim. How's it going?
0: Fantastic. I thank you for uh, taking the time for an interview, and I'm sure that you're busy, a little bit busy this weekend with the reunion thing going on.
1: Yeah, I always have a lot going on. You
0: know. I've seen a couple of interviews, recent interviews. What has it been like to be uh, back with some of your former castmates in the Warriors? I
1: mean, you know, it's been fun. I mean, it's, you know, we, we went through, uh, I, I would say, a, a growth spurt together. Yeah. We were all young, very young kids and, you know, still maturing in our early 20s. And, you know, we, we worked on a movie like that. And it was intense, you know, really intense summer. We kind of forged a bond, I would say, in sweat and blood and tears.
0: I had seen an interview with James Remar who played Ajax in the movie and he said that when the when filming shut down he had kind of postpartum depression because, you know, suddenly you go from bonding with all these people. Yeah. And you guys were working at night for something like yeah. nineteen weeks. Oh
1: my god, it was it was really, really grueling it's at night till six in the morning, you know, And kind a of very physical you know, but I understand that, you know, when it's all over, like, this is the nature of my business is it's, it's temporary intimacy. You get together with a group of people, you get to know them really super well. You get, you expose yourself, you're very vulnerable and, you know, you're exposing yourself if you're any good in your work. And so you, you form this real close relationship and then it's over. And a lot of times you don't see the, person
0: for years in some movies the good guys and the bad guys don't hang out when shooting's not going on but (laughs) (laughs) was there any of that going on on the set i can't see you having a a beer with one of the baseball furies
1: (laughs) (laughs) actually uh you know we really didn't see much of them it's all you know uh they were in one place, and they were coming after us, and we were running, and you know, we didn't really get to mix and mingle with them except at dinner, of course. Yeah, was usually around midnight, and you know, we talk a little bit, and um. Yeah, they were, it was a nice group of people, you know.
0: You grew up in a tough, working-class neighborhood, and you had a big, fa- big family, what was it, Levittown, Pennsylvania? Yep. You got into your share of scrapes as a young guy, yes? Uh,
1: yeah, you know, um, I would say up until the age of 14, it was a standard operating procedure to go out and look for a fight. Uh you know, that was just how we lived. I mean, that's what we did. And, uh, you know, it's like any other lower-middle-class neighborhood. There wasn't much to do except play sports, which I also like to do. But we were, uh, I don't know if we were tough guys, but we certainly thought we were. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of scraping. And, you know, uh, I was part of a thing called the bristol Terrace gang for a brief time. And uh, we got into a few rumbles. And then, um, you know, as fate would have it, I got hit by a car and seriously injured, and it sort of pulled me out of that direction completely, and I changed the focus of my life.
0: And what was it about acting in high school, I believe, that, you know, kind of caught your eye?
1: Actually, it was before that. It was um, when I was in the hospital with all these numerous injuries, I became addicted to the Demerol that they give you to put you, to, you know, out of pain at the end of the day right the night so you go to sleep you know and this is back when you used to be able to smoke in hospitals right so i would get an injection of femoral and I'd <laughs> let it figure it and i'd be like wow this isn't <laughs> real bad at all so what happened is you know the pain of course subsides after a couple of weeks you know and But I wasn't getting the shot of Demerol, so I would pull the emergency cord and I would put on this show of how much pain I was in. And I'd get a shot, and then a couple days later, the doctor comes in and he's like, what do you get this medication for? He he shouldn't need that. And they both looked at me and realized in that, same moment that I was acting, and wow. the nurse said to me, <laughs> "The nurse said you should become an actor." And like a light went off over my head, and um, I started reading, and I started watching movies, and I started studying it in my mind. And as soon as I got out of the hospital, I joined the drama club in high school, and the whole direction of my life changed. You know, I, the theater is great because you know they'll accept anybody. You know, we will accept anybody. We don't care what color you are, what gender you are. If you're two different genders, if you're a gypsy, if you're a nomad, if you're rich or poor, the theater opens its arms and says, come on in. You're okay. You're okay by us.
0: I think you said this in a past interview that once you got up on stage, the audience listened to you. It's the first time someone (laughs) listened.
1: (laughs) In my life. <laughs> Understand, you know, seven kids and two cousins, you, you didn't get a word in edgewise. Right. Uh, there wasn't like it is today with parents talking to their kids. You know, it wasn't like that. It was survival of the fittest, so to speak. Different generations, different mentality. And, uh, you know, I walked on stage and I started saying lines, and all of a sudden, I realized there were like 500 people listening to me. I <laughs> went, I know what I'm doing the rest of my life. Yeah, you
0: command the room. Obviously, you were impressive enough that you were accepted into the drama program at Juilliard.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, um, actually, I, I went to a community college for a year. And at yeah. the community college, County Community College, I had two very good teachers, Stephen Stearns and David Dean, and they were both really, you know, fairly advanced in the theater and Steven Stearns, he, he brought us to New York City to watch the acting company, the newly formed acting company. And I saw them do a play called The Hostage. And I just went, wow, you know, I know what I'm dedicating my life to, the art and the discipline of this craft. And so we said, why don't you guys, there was about 10 of us, why don't you guys audition for Juilliard? And I was like, what the hell? You know, I, I probably was going to end up a carpenter or some or a carpenter's assistant or a plumber. You know, yeah. I didn't know what I was going to do join the Navy, you know, go get shot. I didn't know what I was going to do with my life, but in the community college, I had gotten several leads and plays. So it kind of, uh, you know, it told me again that I might have a little talent. And and I uh, had a great affinity for Romeo and Juliet. And uh, I memorized it and I worked on it and my teachers helped me with it. And, you know, that day the stars and the planets were with me and I did a good audition and, you know, (laughs) they said to me, um... You know, they're English. They're like, darling, are you willing to change the way you talk? And I was <laughs> like, sure, you know, why not? <laughs> I'm not crazy about the way I talk as it is. <laughs> you know, how can you afford it? I mean, we can provide a scholarship for you, but how can you, do you have the money to live here? I said, well, right now I live in a junkyard. <laughs> I lived in a junkyard because of the, I would work there in the morning before classes and it paid for my room and board. And they just thought that was the funniest thing they ever heard. <laughs> yeah, so it was, you know, I was as much, as much an anomaly to them as they were to me. And they were nice enough and generous enough. And whenever I do get any money, I try to contribute to the Juilliard scholarship fund because you know, there's a lot of people out there like me that were poor. And came from poor neighborhoods and have talents and abilities. And they gave me a full scholarship and a little money to live on and, of course, I got jobs and things, and you know, my whole life changed.
0: I mean, Thomas says, as somebody who you now run your own acting, acting workshop, studio, yeah. you more than anyone know how fortunate you were in getting all these great teachers along the way who showed you yeah. the, the possibilities.
1: Yeah. Oh man. I mean, we had the best. Uh, you know, Elizabeth Smith, the master of voice and speech, Robert Williams. Uh, you know, great acting teachers. We we were watching. Well, yes have to We would get in school at 9 o'clock in the morning and we'd have a dance class, then we'd have a speech class at 10, then we'd have a voice class at 11, then we'd have a dinner break for two hours, and then we'd have a three-hour acting class, then we'd have two hours off, and then we'd be in rehearsal all night. I mean, and it was like that most of the time. And, you know, that's really good because it disciplines your mind to focus on what you're doing, and you can't get so easily distracted, even in New York, you know, because you're compelled to, and, and they're expecting you to live up to their standard, it was tough, tough Yeah,
0: role. sounds very intense, and so yeah. you weren't that old when when your first film role came to you.
1: Right. Actually, uh, I did a movie before On the Yard when I was 21, I, I did a movie for PBS called Pity the Poor Soldier, which um, a wonderful actor named William Sanderson was in, and um, Kevin Klein was an extra. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and it's a little-known movie, a Revolutionary War film, and we shot it in 1976 in celebration of our country's anniversary. That was my first film, and interestingly enough, at that moment in my life, I was offered two movies at the same time. This is before On The Art. so I'm 21. I'm basically virtually homeless. I somehow get my way into an agent's office. I do my monologues for the guy. He pulls out a contract and puts it on his desk and goes, I'm going to open all the doors for you because, you know, you've got it. And um, a week later, I was offered two movies, and I took the one with the lesser money and the lesser role because I wanted to learn more about being an actor in movies before I carried one on my back. And then I was in a Broadway play with Frank Langella called Dracula, and I quit. I quit. (laughs) I walked out i am i have had the most tumultuous journey
0: <laughs> yeah this is bringing up all kinds of great memories yeah, right thomas yeah right right exactly. <laughs> so I,
1: I quit because i didn't like the costume okay you know they're like look you have to wear bat wings on your sneakers and you know flip your eyeballs around i'm like look this, this is not for me you know they're like well edward Gorey is the artist and i was like well what the fuck am i <laughs> i was so arrogant and interestingly enough i walked out of the theater, a Broadway theater, 21 years old, I turned this, my back on this job, and I called my agent, and he goes, Well, quick, get over to Ray Silver's office, because they're looking for somebody for this movie on the art. And I went over. I was First, I was screen, I screen tested for a supporting role, and when they watched The Rushes, they said, No, that's, that guy's the lead. He's, he's the guy. And I did on the art when I was 22.
0: Man, amazing. And so you've got an agent at that point. So how did the Warriors Project come to you?
1: Well, you know, um, by then I was like kind of making a little bit of a name for myself and people were talking about me. And, you know, I I, I would get invited to kind of, you know, elite theater conferences and things like that. You know, I was cutting my teeth as an actor because I'd already done a play at the Spoleto Festival. and, And so I was on the audition circuit, auditioning for you know movies and tv and then the warriors came into town and uh, I actually knew uh, Scott Rudin who was is now a big mafi a big producer of right. movies probably you know he's a big shot but back then, he was a casting director, and he and I were friendly. Uh, you know, I did a couple of favors for him. I would, you know, help out by doing a scene with someone for him and his office or going tape with someone. You know, I, I, it's just, I was in the business now, Right. and he took me out to dinner and to a Broadway play, and he said, look, there are two movies in town, The Warriors and The Wanderers, and uh, I'd like you to consider both of them. You know, because you're probably one of the most talked about actors in the city. You and John Heard, whom i done on the yard. <clears throat> and so, you know, there was some, I guess, buzz about me, so to speak. And I went in and I auditioned and, you know, I didn't think anything of it. I mean, I do thousands of auditions, thousands of them. I get called back for hundreds of them and I get 20, 30. Yeah. You know, if you add in all the plays and everything on you know, and TV and soap operas, uh, maybe I get 50 or 60. I don't know. I, I do better than some and not as well as others. And then they called me back and I, I went in and I did this call back. And then it looked like they were seriously interested and they had a third round of auditions. And by now I'm starting to think like, well, what if I get this thing? You know, are they stupid enough to hire me? <laughs> <laughs> and then the fourth so they had done you're only allowed to do three auditions, and if you do four, you have to pay the actor.
0: oh I so see a Union, yeah,
1: so for the fourth, they asked me if I would come in and just have a conversation with them, like it wasn't an audition, so Deborah van Volkkenberg and I went to Larry and Walter's office in the Gulf and western building, and we we just talked, you know and um you know, they asked me about myself and where I was from and, uh, and Deborah too. And she was, a, you know, she's a great gal. We got along great, you know, uh, from the moment we met.
0: She's the one who played uh, Mercy.
1: Right. And then, um, you know, the next morning, you know, Jeff called me and said, you got it. And, uh, you know, uh, come out to my house this weekend because it's a very involved contract and I need to speak with you for a long time. I went out, you know, I had a girlfriend with me, Janet, and he's like, you know, can I speak in front of Janet? And I said, sure. And it was this big, long, elaborate contract with Paramount that I was signing, not just to do the Warriors, but to do three pictures. Oh, it never panned out. But so,
0: so it, it was uh, similar to the old studio, studio type system.
1: That's right. You 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 must know something about the business because they don't do that
0: anymore. I've talked to actors who you know and read stuff about how Clint Eastwood and people like that were James Garner always trying to get out of those contracts.
1: Yeah, yeah. Pacino was offered in, he was optioned. I forget what studio, but De Niro was put under option, and me and uh, you know I'm sure others. Lots of others, I don't know who they are, but it was it's a rather prestigious thing, you know, to, to be a kid. And, you know, I barely was, I was barely eating in those days, you know. I mean that literally, you know. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I'd work and I'd, but you're alone, you're in a big city, it's very expensive, and, you know, you're trying to survive, so.
0: Does your agent go along with you to this particular meeting where they're talking about a contract like this? No. Okay.
1: He and I work it out alone, you know, and then we come back and say, yes, no, maybe this, that, change this, change that, blah, blah, blah. Give us more money, you know. Right. And then, um, you know, we signed it and, you know, my future looked very bright. And um, then we started shooting the movie and, and we ran into problems, you know, uh, personality problems. I didn't, I didn't think we were making such a violent picture. You know, I was really... I'm, I'm against violence, I hate violence, you know, um, I and mean, that's sort of a paradox because hate is violent in itself, but, you know, it's not something I want to go around advocating, you know, consciously or unconsciously, and all of a sudden I'm watching these scenes and it's like, what the f-? I- uh, I thought we were making a love story here, you know. Uh, It could have been, I was delusional. I mean, that's quite possible.
0: Well, and I had heard, Thomas, that Walter Hill had taken the screenplay and really stripped it down to where it was. It was more of almost like a ballet when it came to the choreography of the fight scenes and all that stuff. But the dialogue was really cut.
1: Yeah, it, it was. It was a, It became a, a ballet for fight scenes. I was getting more and more pissed off, you know, and, and then I'd ask him, if, you know, to talk about it. And he's like, I'm busy right now, you know, and I'm like, all right, you know, and then I asked him again. And then I started to become like a pain in the ass on the set. I'm like, okay, well, you know, I, I didn't sign up for this. And, you so know, I had a point, I think a somewhat valid point. Right. Here's my error. I didn't go through the proper channels. I just took it upon myself to advocate on my own behalf, which I'd done my whole life, you know. Um, And I should have called my agent and said, look, this is not the deal we made. Let's stop shooting and deal with me. And I didn't have the um, guidance, confidence. I didn't have the insight to
0: do that? Well, it's amazing to me, too, when you think about young actors, you're really out there on your own a lot of the time, especially like you were. Now, to verify this story, if you would. Walter Hill had heard enough of your complaining about this particular subject that he actually had the stunt coordinator, Craig Baxley, kill off your character. Oh, I d- read that, too. I was
1: kind of shocked. I was like, wow, he must have really you know, what From my point of view, what happened is Uh, the production office called and told my agent, you know, not to show up on Monday because they didn't want me back. So I called Walter and he never said it was me. He he made it seem like they did it. And I'm like, well, well, I haven't even developed my character yet. How could you fire me? I haven't even started doing anything. Wow. And he's like, yeah, well, you know. I mean, he wasn't unkind. I just he wasn't forthcoming either. I mean, I w- wouldn't it would be a different life if he said, "Look, I'm gonna give you know, Like they did this with Pacino in The Godfather. You know, they were gonna fire him, but they gave him a warning. You know, they they said, "Look, this isn't working. You have to change this and that and this and that." And then you know his life changed because but
0: of that. From a fan perspective, I, re- I remember seeing the film in the theater the first weekend it was out and I'm about your age and I was thinking that I think I thought at the time it's one thing for James Remar's character to get handcuffed and caught by the police but you were kind of the, the brains of the of the gang and it just didn't seem to quite fit here.
1: Right. It seems that way to me. You know, I hadn't watched it in a long time and I watched it and I was like, this this is not organic. You know, this Right. And then it, it became more and more of like this glistening ballet sweat and muscles. And, right. You know, it did just what I, I don't want to say I predict, look, I was pain in the ass and I deserve, deserved to be reprehended and you know I have a strong personality and I'm not everybody's cup of tea and I accept all that and I really wish that I had behaved differently but I think I also had a certain prescience you know with regard to this matter what what are we doing Sure enough, the thing opens, and everybody started beating the shit out of each other. You want to wait a minute?
0: Well, and I know the timing of it was uh, so that uh, when it came out in 1979, that it was just, you know, the whole gang thing in New York City was getting getting ready to blow up anyway. Times were changing, that's for sure.
1: Well, the 80s were coming. So the what I consider the 70s to be an age of substance, we were heading into an age of disney-esque fascism that we're still stuck in where everything is money uh, everything is material everything is the outside of the person there's no search for a soul you know a guy like Pacino or Dustin Hoffman they never would have made it in the 80s because you know it's become a beauty I I watch TV and I go come on this guy's a cop (laughs) he belongs on the cover of GQ (laughs) and each one gets more perfectly beautiful than the other women too So then it's ridiculous, and then they call in like a normal-looking person. And I I can't get into that. I don't want to watch beautiful people all the time. I feel bad enough about myself.
0: Well, Hollywood has no place for someone with your integrity, Thomas. I hope you know this.
1: (laughs) Very kind of you to say, I
0: appreciate it. (laughs) The experience of making the film. I know that this was a real guerrilla filmmaking situation. I mean, it was entirely shot on location. And. Tough shoot, and Paramount Studios had that rep back then of shooting fast and cheap, and and you guys, you were literally just running through this whole
1: shoot. Oh, man. And we were behind schedule, and we were over budget, and Walter's movie The Driver came out, and it flopped. And again, like an idiot, I should have said, hey, that was a great movie. And he's like, did you see the movie? I said, yeah. He goes, how'd you like it? I said, I liked it. I thought it was good. You know, because I'm not like that. I'm not one of these... You know, upper crust people that knows how to say, "Oh, it was wonderful," and you were brilliant in your You know, I, I said I liked it. You know, and maybe that wasn't effusive enough. Uh, right. I don't know.
0: Have you two made peace since then, you and Walter Hill?
1: This is what happened. You know, I have had struggles. Personal struggles with uh, several things, and you know, I had a wife and a child in the 1980s, and you know, my career wasn't going where I wanted to wanted it to, and I really had hit a bottom, first of many, unfortunately. And uh, I called them, and I said, maybe you know, this is what's. It was me. I was in my own way. Believe me. Uh, but I called him and I said, uh, well, he called me back, which was amazing. And he said, well, what, what do you want? And I said, I just want to say I'm really sorry for my part in this. And uh and he said, that's all right. I just wish you didn't take your name off the movie because that was another one of my acts of belligerence. You know, I mean, I was I was hurt. I guess. I was hurt, and I was angry, and, and I had just done a movie with Al, and then I started doing plays with Al, and I, you know, I guess I, my ego got out of control. you know it, It's very hard in this business to keep your ego in check. You, you have to understand, like, you're just a normal, regular schmo. Right. And then one day, you're on, in this place where everybody's fixing your hair and putting makeup on you and fixing your clothes, like constant attention. And if they think you're going to be a star, they treat you, they kiss your, I mean, it's a completely different life. And, you know, if you're a fool, as I was, you believe your own bullshit and you step in the wrong direction, and you know you stick your ass into the fire, and you know you're going to get burnt.
0: Hey, listen, I I can see how it happens, though. I really can, and and I'm sh- I'm sure that you mentioned Al Pacino. I'm sure you had a discussion with him one or two about. Uh, oh man. He seems, to me, very similar to you. You end up doing Justice for All together, by the way, which mm-hmm. which was fantastic. But, yeah, yeah I mean, I, yeah. there are certain actors who have that integrity built in. It
1: was nice this morning, you know, on Good New- Day New York, um, Greg Kelly said, um, you know, I said, I have a dubious distinction fired from this movie. And uh, he goes, hey, listen, a lot of great actors can be difficult to work with sometimes. And I thought, thank you, you know, And and we can, Al can be difficult, believe me. He can be very difficult. Uh, but he can afford to be. He's in a position where, you know, but he wasn't always, it wasn't always like that. He came up just like I did and cut his teeth and, you know, learned his lessons and he shared a lot of, it was really, it was like having an older brother, you know, very close.
0: How has your acting studio, how has this been for you? It must be very rewarding to work with students now, Beyond on the other side of it.
1: Yeah, you know, what I've discovered, you know, it's like if you can take your mistakes and celebrate them and take your failures and be as proud of them as you are of your successes, uh, that's what I feel I've done as an acting teacher is I started my own acting studio. I am particularly good at teaching. I don't know why or what comes from you know, I'm an older brother maybe, but but um first of all, I'm a good role model because you know I'm, I'm a good man now. Secondly, I know the work inside out, upside down, back and forth from the Greeks to you know today, and so I can really help people. I can really help them and a lot of times that helps their personal growth as well. So, you know, I, I tell them I didn't just burn bridges, I blew them out. of the water.
0: <laughs> You're the type of guy that people will listen to because you learned the hard way and you came out on the other side of it.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I did. I, I've been lucky. I've been really, really lucky. I have a great wife, Lisa, who has stood by me through all of this. We were married for 12 years, divorced for 13, and now we're back together for three. Amazing. Yeah, Uh, and she's stood by my side, and at times not, because you can't. You can't, you know, go down with a burning ship unless you're an idiot, you know. Um, And these are all things, you know, life lessons. But I really have one thing to say to anybody listening to this. Make your failure your success. Make your mistakes your guideposts. Don't be ashamed of them. You know, people are victims. There's no reason to be a victim. You know, not me, not anybody.
0: Thomas, if people want to connect with your acting school, what? Do, how do they do that?
1: Uh, you go to thomasgwaites.com, all lowercase thomasgwaites.com, and there's the website, and there's a ton of stuff on there. There's Tom talks, and you know, there's phone numbers you can call. You can come and watch a class for free. It's a great class, I'm telling you. I have a great group of people and it's very exciting and we do a lot of good work and we do a lot of performances and I direct a lot it's a really good thing.
0: It's great to uh, to talk to you. I've been a big fan. uh, Thank you, Jim. Good luck with the reunion. I I hope that you have a great time with all the old uh, gang.
1: Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, Thomas. Send me a copy of it when it's
0: done. I will do. I'll get in touch with your people. Okay, thank All you. right, bye-bye. Wouldn't you just love to sit in on one of Thomas's acting classes? I know I would. His is an incredible story. He went on to great work, of course, like And Justice for All and The Thing. The Warriors also made a name for director Walter Hill, who went on to do The Long Riders, 48 Hours, Streets of Fire, and many other films. Here's a weird fact about the movie. Tony Danza was being Considered for a role as one of the Warriors But then got cast on the sitcom Taxi Well, I hope you enjoyed our little trip to Coney with Thomas Waits Thanks for joining us, as always Remember to follow along on the Fake Show Facebook and Twitter pages I'm Jim Tofty, and we leave you now with this Wait a couple of seconds after we move Then cut out the other way Warriors, come out to play.
1: Take the fake show
0: on the road by listening on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes.